If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I welcome back my old friend Eric Davis to talk about how the grassroots values and DIY ethos of Generation X could provide an antidote to an ailing culture that has been polluted by corporate takeover of media and the internet. Eric Davis is an author, award-winning journalist, and popular speaker based in San Francisco. He's the author of many books on technology, esotericism, and American subculture, but his first and best-known book is Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, a cult classic of visionary media studies that has been translated into five languages and most recently republished by North Atlantic Press. He hosted the podcast Expanding Mind on the Progressive Radio Network for a decade and earned his PhD in religious studies from Rice University in 2015. He currently writes the Substack publication Burning Shore and frequently hosts events at the Alembic in Berkeley, California. I really enjoyed this conversation with Eric, and I hope that you get something from it too. If you appreciate conversations like this one, and you'd like to support this podcast and gain access to early release of episodes and the full podcast archives, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Do I have your consent, sir? No.
everything you say will be held against you. Whenever I wonder what's what it, what things are about, Grover lets me know. He doesn't know either. It's all a big zero. Who who lets you know? Grover. 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 Oh, Grover. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Hey, Grover, what's the meaning of life? I love that. Where did you find that? Might be a big zero. <laughs> be a big, the big nothing. <laughs> well, he's kind of a perfect mascot for what I wanted to talk with you about today, <clears throat> being uh, gener Generation X, so-called Generation X. I think both of us uh, fit into that generation. Yeah, I was born in '74. I think you're you're. I don't I don't remember when the next cutoff is, but you're on more on one side. I'm more on the more on the other. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Generally, it's like. 65 to 80 or sometimes it's pushed to 85 mm -hmm. so i'm a young gen xer i guess and uh you know but i'm not young i'm uh <laughs> yeah I turned, isn't that funny i turned I turned 49 this year and, and it's maybe why i've been reflecting so much on this generation um and also like dealing with like some heavy nostalgia for the nineties. I got to tell you. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've gotten waves of, of nostalgia for the nineties and it was kind of interesting. I don't know how it looks from where you're sitting, but from where I'm sitting, the, the night, the nineties revival never really happened. Like there, you know, there've been a couple of books. I know J Chuck Klosterman wrote a book and you know, his, his takes all right. Like I, I like him enough, but it, it didn't get to, the deeper elements that were going on there. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of a real rich reassessment of the decade, particularly the first half of the decade. Um, and it's kind of weird, millennial, magical, recombinant uh, creativity. And I don't know, there was just, there was definitely a particular, you know, we were young, so you have that going on as well, but you know, in the rearview mirror, I still think of that as kind of an extraordinary time, and in some ways, sort of the last extraordinary time, meaning the time when the the heaviness that was always, you know, it's always around in the post-war world or in the world in general, but where uh, it did not predominate in a way that um, certainly by 2000, 2001, since then, you know, it's just been... <laughs> been a shadowy simulacra um in a weird way and uh uh so yeah so both the 90s and there are very interesting things about our generation and i do think i do think it's valuable to think in terms of generations it's it can be cliched it can be easy it can be wrong um but i do think it's valuable partly because with what whatever other factors you might want to think about in terms of say, you know, uh, permissiveness in the society or teaching uh, modalities in public schools, there's just the technological reality, you know, and that to me makes justifies it significantly, um, both in terms of reflecting back on uh, older generations like ours, or in trying to figure out what's going on with up and coming generations, like it's fascinating to sort of take, if you ever dip into like how millennials think about the younger generations, it's fascinating. Cause you're like, whoa, like 
that's it's like different and similar. Like I can get it, but it's also different because they have their own, you know, kind of anxieties and concerns in a way that just don't quite resonate with mine. And I I do believe there are really, really fundamental differences and distinctions that I think you can trace partly to technology, not entirely. I think there's also something about the relationship to the boomers. Um, and for a lot of younger people, Generation X are basically boomers. Like we don't like when they say, okay, boomer, they could be talking to us. Like there's a difference. They'll acknowledge it, but they don't really see it. And that, you know, that kind of makes sense in a way, you know, in terms of how we sort of were like the rebound and the digesting force and the kind of reframer of this explosion of, you know, the counterculture. Um, so there's a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was looking around to see who's talking about Generation X now, and uh, I was a little disappointed, maybe a little depressed by some of the characterizations that I found. Like a lot of them were super superficial, like what you're talking about, um, you know, grunge, kind of alternative music, MTV, um, Douglas Copeland's book, you know speaking about uh, the refusal to take Mick jobs in veal fattening pens and, and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, and so some of the terms that are used are that Gen X is the invisible generation. Another term I came across was the sandwich generation that we're in between these two bigger generations of the boomers and the millennials. Um, and there doesn't sound to be like a lot of... Uh, appreciation for what gen x has contributed um and I, I think it's significant too like i see the 90s as the kind of last golden period um but when my wife and i talk about it you know what's our role in in the present culture we've seen ourselves as uh being the possible bridge generation um bridging back to a time before uh smartphones and ubiquitousness of uh, social media things like that and also like a bridge back to certain values that i think have been lost with all of that uh technological process or progress well it's hard to say progress but change mm -hmm. uh you know and i think about diy culture um transgressive art transgressive music um remix culture you know remix culture yeah and I think like what defined um, our generation from where I stand anyway, and my experience of it was, I think we were the first generation to be critical of the previous generation and their values. And, uh, but our response, I think, was different in that we became more politically apathetic, I think, and kind of withdrew from culture, which was, I think, the seeds of what has been called alternative culture it was an alternative to the mainstream but that itself got co-opted and turned mainstream um, yeah but in, in our generation i mean that's part of the story of our generation it's like one way i like i like to think about it and i've been sitting with this for a long time and i, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. it even though it's broad brush and anytime you're using a broad brush you're, you're missing a lot of important detail but that the you know, the experience of the boomers from, you know, whatever, 64, 65 to let's let's give it to the 
let's give it to 75, maybe even 1980 at the, at the outset, but really 75 is the counterculture. There's a sense of kind of a, even though there's different factions of it, different even contradictory aspects of it, there's a sense of kind of a unified generational change. And then what follows that from roughly 75 to I peg it to about 2000, and there's a guy named David Chapman, who is a very interesting thinker. He, he talks a lot about Buddhism, and uh, but in a kind of a, a rationalist, post-rationalist way. Very interesting thinker, but he's, have, he's done a lot of thought about subcultures too. Anyway, this period, so if you have a period from like 65 to 75, it's like the counterculture from 75 to about 2000, I believe you can think about as the era of subculture. So what happens in subculture is like these various groups kind of go off on their own and they dig more and more deeply into a kind of underground. And the conditions of technological media, which is again why I think it's legitimate to talk about generations is because our experiences and in particular our formative experiences are fundamentally shaped by the media environment, the media ecology. So in this era, which is still up to the mid nineties, uh, predominantly with some important exceptions, analog era, that, that becoming subculture and digging into the underground, you're actually able to sort of be in the shadows. You know, there's a great book about 1980s, you know, like before alternative rock was a category, it was a space and it's called what we do is secret. And there's a sense in which these underground bands, like just to take a, a, an example, like when Black Flag started touring, so they, they're making local records, it's an independent label, it's really small, they just play locally, da -da -da -da, and they kind of realize, wait, everywhere across the country in any decent sized city, there's some kind of weird record store, punk rock bar, club, actually we can just network with those institutions or not even institutions those people and like flyer and get put you know and sleep on someone's couch and go and play a grotty little club and get in a van and so you get like a national network an analog network of independent labels making independent music for people who have decided or been initiated into getting into those worlds you know and that's one of the things about I mean, what's what's well, let me just finish the big picture and then come back to it. And so there are these conditions that that make space for subcultures. You know, the Grateful Dead is a very big one, a very big subculture. This still operates like a subculture, even though it's affecting large numbers of people. And then as digital media starts coming in, subcultures migrate online to some to varying degrees. So in the 80s, what was a zine world where people are independently making their own little zines, trading them with other people who are doing zines, buying things like Fact Sheet 5 that tell you all these other zine makers. And you kind of go into this rhizomatic world where there's people distributed and no one else is paying attention and there's 100 copies of the thing or whatever. A lot of that energy starts to go into the Internet. And so there's this period where on bulletin boards or listservs, early alt groups, whatever, that uh, uh, that Usenet groups, that there's kind of this subcultural energy online. Um, the well is the kind of great example of this, where you have mm. conversations that are public, 
They're accessible, but they're still really niche. And the kind of people who go there are usually pretty weird. Like as somebody who was online, I got online and like, I can't remember what year, it's either 92 or 93, before the World Wide Web. And it was like full of like weird, you know, queer, pagan, theorist, mystic, just great, fun, strange. And so it was still kind of subculture. And then at a certain point, it just all gets kind of recirculated and transformed in a way. And, and I believe this really strongly. And I thought a lot about saying it. And I don't like to sound like a grump. But I believe that in some ways, subculture ends sometime and isn't really available anymore. What we have that people call subcultures now, you know, like furries or something like that, they share many features of the zone that I'm talking about. But there's also a lot of really important differences. And so while it's not like I don't want to talk about contemporary subcultural energy or some other kind of word, it's also important to acknowledge what was lost. And this has a lot to do with the kind of fundamental difference between the analog world and the digital world that comes, which is this question of scarcity and access. So if I start to get into punk rock and I'm living in a suburban town and there's like a couple, what do I do? I go to like, there's no clubs even. We, we they don't even come, they go down to the big cities. It's too far from me, but there's a record store. So I got to go to the record store. Now I go to the record store. What the hell do I buy? I, well, there's the, the older dude behind the counter. He knows, but I, I kind of have to impress him. I mean, he's not going to just tell me. So I got to like buy the right records, start chatting and da da da. And like, maybe he'll drop me like something yummy and boom, then like a vein opens up and then I can start exploring because there's no internet. They're, the magazines that I have access to Rolling Stone are already too mainstream. I can't get to the underground except maybe my old a friend, someone's older brother or whatever. So there's a process of entering into these subcultural modes that has an initiatory quality. You got to risk something. You got to explore. You have to put yourself out there. You, you, you have to not know what the fuck's going on. You have to be an idiot. You have to be a, a noob or whatever to get to. And this is true, you know, in esoteric subculture, lots of different things that are going on. Sexual subcultures, some of them like super transgressive stuff that's happening in the 80s, like way more transgressive than before you know, like dark stuff even, because it's all about like finding these edges and going a little bit beyond them with it kind of in, in the secrecy zone. And so that initiatory experience, I think really affects, it shapes you, especially when you're young. It's sort of like going through rites of passage. Like I had a rite of passage that brought me into the Grateful Dead. I had a rite of passage that brought me into like weird re religious practices, like going to ashrams and get smoking pot before we go in and the chanting Hare Krishna for three hours because that's what the boomers were doing that we were going but we were going kind of more as like heads that were like wow let's see what happens but it required this kind of process and now when everything's sort of available not even available but it's pushing like the spiritual teachers are pushing you they're th everything's pushing it just it's just such a different sub mode of subjectivity where like 15-year-old kids can know more details about the esoteric electronic scene in Cologne in 1972 than I could ever know, uh, even as an adult, you know, rock critic who was interested in that period. So 
that just changes something. And I think that it it's partly affects the way that we kind of relate and also part of our nostalgia, that we're not just nostalgic for a time when, you know, and you're, you're, you know, I'm ten, like whatever, eight years off of you. So I have a little bit more, there's a little bit more of the eighties in my mix or whatever, but it doesn't, in my mind, really change until the start, start changing until the late nineties. Um, that, uh, that, that, that we're not just nostalgic for like, oh, it was kind of cool back then. And there wasn't as much surveillance. It's actually kind of a, a mode of being, and I'll say one more thing and then shut up. Um, how to talk about this quality, how to name the generation or name the experience of the generation is that we were fun. We're, we were raised when we were kids interacting with media and interacting with the world. We lived in an analog world. Everything was analog. I remember the first computers that I saw at my dad's work. A friend had a, his older brother was a computer nerd in the seventies. And he had like really early machines where you recorded the bits on cassette tapes and like whatever. And, and those were strange extrusions from some bizarre future that then took over. And there's, you know, some real differences between analog and digital. And so I feel like we are, the Gen X sort of live in what I call the analog sunset. And so there's a kind of melancholy to it. And also a sense of like, look, there were some real differences here, kids, but the kids are like, okay, whatever, like, so what? Like, you know, some are interested because they have some historical consciousness or they want to know what came before or whatever. But for the most part, it just doesn't register anymore. So we're watching the, you know, the kind of disappearance of a mode of being in the world that was really different, that analog mode, with even just with media, not even talking about like relating to nature or whatever, but just like, just the way relationship to media. And uh, and so that I think produces a particular quality to our experience where we're not just, we're not just sort of critiquing and digesting and in some ways extending the counterculture because in some ways subculture extends part of the counterculture often less political or more anarchic. Um, but that we're also in relationship to a whole mode of media that kind of declines. And with that, aspects of history, aspects of the scarcity world that creates initiation and discovery in a different way that happens once we get to digital abundance. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really key as well, like the nature of the technology. Like I was thinking how important the photocopier was to our generation and DIY culture and sustaining and promoting subcultures. And certainly the, the early internet felt like you're saying the same, like it felt underground. You could find these strange little corners uh, by the same kind of word of mouth message uh, method. And it was really interesting. And I remember like, for me, it was like a real turning point when Google started to uh, create ads on the internet. And I remember like we were all talking about it, how that was going to change things and kind of ruin things. Um, but the corporatization of the internet and media in general, I think has had a big effect. Like um, I remember like Terrence McKenna talked quite a bit about this, about uh, not being consumers, but being creators. And I think we did far less uh, kind of gluttonous consumption or passive consumption 
like we had to seek things out that were interesting to us and maybe weren't so readily available. And that is a, a completely different um, mode of being and mindset. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and actually when you talk about the photocopier and that's a great way into the differences between analog and digital, which is a really interesting thing, at least I think, especially for our generation to kind of meditate on because we've sort of had these fundamental experiences of the difference. And how do we think about that difference? Well, some people, they often go to like, well, does do analogs, does, you know, does, a, does an LP, vinyl LP sound better than a digital recording? And that's just kind of an annoying argument. And they're, they're both great or di slightly different, whatever. But more important is the nature of copying. Because with the photocopier or with the cassette tape, I'm making a copy of a record or I'm making a copy of an image that I've cut out of a magazine. And every time I make a copy, it degrades in quality. And if I make a copy of a copy of a copy, you start hearing more and more noise or you start seeing more and more artifacts as the image gets blurrier in a photocopier. So for example, I'd get Grateful Dead tapes. You know, that was the great era of the Grateful Dead tape where you'd get these, you know, X generation copies. Like sometimes you have like fifth generation copy of a great show from 1974 and you could hear it and it didn't make it less magical. It just made it different. And the same thing with like, there were positive qualities of like you photocopy something over and over and over and it starts to kind of get all weird and look like Andre the giant or something, you know, that kind of quality. And then when you, when you're dealing with a digital copy that just goes away disappears and if you just kind of think about that as like a as like an uh it tells you something about the difference between those two in one copies over time develop their own qualities and kind of degrade they sort of age there's a sense of distance from a source which can be magical too can be kind of enchanted um you know, like I remember some guy uh, from who grew up in Hungary talked about, he says, you have no idea the magic power of a cassette tape that had been re reproduced from another cassette tape, from another cassette tape that somebody had recorded of a Jimi Hendrix record over the air from the West. Like, you have no idea the talismanic drug-like power of this cassette. And then when you get into digital where you don't have these, this kind of degradation, there's other kinds of degradation that's interesting. It just shifts the mode. You're, you're not in the kind of a historical relationship of lineage. You're just in this kind of re, sort of immediate reproduction. And it just, mm. it just feels different. You know, it feels different to grow up around those, those kinds of copies. It's just different. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, something about the degradation puts us in a... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A very different kind of relationship to time like a very tangible relationship to time and passage of time and memory and things like that. And uh, when things are reproduced to perfection over and over and over again, um, you, I think you lose that and you, you're put in a more strangely liminal space where uh, you don't have that same tangible sense of the passage of time. And I, you're so right. Like uh, there's the cassette tape, there's the videotape too, which was another way into finding um you know different subcultures like i remember it was like a rite of passage when i got my first richard kern video yes and sitting down with my friends like putting this thing in the machine a little afraid of what we're about to see and often <laughs> not disappointed you know like truly transgressive stuff yeah uh, but there was a kind of occult and magical quality to those things that were that we uh either found our way to or were passed on to us by some older person you know like guys eight years older than me were the ones making me once they found out what I was into and that I was serious about music and things like that you know they'd make me these mixtapes of uh Captain Beefheart and um I remember there was a guy who found out that I liked Prince and I was like a little metalhead who loved Prince which was weird. So he's like, have you heard the Black Album, which was this mythical album that was never released. And so he made a cassette copy of it. And yeah, it had a kind of, um, yeah, talismanic uh, or, yeah, very strange and magical quality to it. But now like all that degradation has been fetishized and pretty early in the social media revolution. Like I was one of the first people on Instagram because I was working in marketing. And uh, the, the big draw to Instagram was the access to these filters. And they were all retro filters to make things look like Kodachrome or Polaroids. So already there was a, a fetishizing of degradation. Uh, and now... Yeah, it doesn't you know, have any... Yeah. yeah, like graphic design filters to grungify things and add paper texture and photocopy texture and all of this. It's It's a huge market. And people are replicating those kind of um, degraded qualities without any connection to the process of it, like yeah. running things through a photocopier a uh, hundred times to get it looking more grungy. Like that was a thing that I learned to do from people like Art Chantry, who was really big in the Seattle underground. Um, he created the whole look of grunge really. Yeah. And his his uh, medium was the photocopier. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, it's 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 really key. And I think that that part of the I think part of the this strangeness for us is because those filters or what those filters are simulating are are actually bound up with our memories. So like when I when I have the photos that, you know, were taken in the early 70s when I was a kid, 
and look at them and they have that quality of degradation of the colors over uh, a little oversaturating kind of drifting or whatever like that's actually a trigger for a certain kind of iconic relationship to time like we were talking about there's there's something about these um analog forms of decay or, or transformation are not just linked to time the way you talk about it but also to nature because they decay yeah. that's the world the world uh, decays you know things, it's like things that are things that are materially real decay yeah you know and you can say well digital is real it's like a little thing it's lodged in a piece of chunk you know, it's got silicon da 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 so let's not pretend that, in fact they want us to believe it's not material it's in the cloud well no it's not it's on somebody's computer somewhere but that said the mode of physicality is i think fundamentally different and it's really important to recognize that and that analog has a natural relationship to nature whereas digital has a simulated relationship to nature so it simulates the decay it simulates the quality of materiality that give us some kind of emotional hit but it's but in our case because we're chan x it's like our actual fabric of memory so it's like this weird, bleh, you know, you know, when I see those filters, uh, whatever, and I still can get really nostalgic looking at, at photographs from the late 60s and early 70s, early to mid 70s, and, you know, the early mid 70s in general. Um, and but, you know, then it's like, is this real? Is it not? You know, whatever. It's a really it's a very, um, you know, strange process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was like, as you're speaking about uh, the, those subcultures and uh, access and scarcity and things like that, there's also the element of ownership. Like back in the day, we owned those subcultures. Uh, we owned the products of those subcultures, you know, whether it was independent record labels or uh, cassette tape duplication, videotape duplication, um, making flyers on a photocopier that anyone had access to, like kind of co-opting office supplies from those McJobs and uh, using them for our own purposes. Um, now when people create things, they don't really own it in the same way. You know, it's all uh, hosted on these platforms that are owned by these gargantuan corporations that don't care about culture. Um, do you think that has an effect on it as well? Like, I, you know, you're talking about like people that we would maybe call gatekeepers, you know, the people that you had to kind of uh, impress or uh, coerce into letting you in on the secret culture, whatever it was. Um, but now like gatekeeping is seen as a really bad thing. Yeah. And it's yeah. like the, the floodgates are open and we're getting blasted with all this content which is just such an empty term but i think it's actually fitting because yeah. it is just kind of content and it's none of it is really meaningful or it's yeah, so I, ephemeral that yes it, you know it, it, i i agree no i think that the ownership um is a real big part of it and i remember in my community in the 90s you know i was i was friends with some people i think about um Julian DeBell and Marcus Boone, who were writers, uh, Julian doesn't uh, write anymore, but he did a lot in the 90s and, and 2000s about technology. And we were kind of, we could see what was sort of happening. And then when we go get into digital files and the beginning of file sharing, 
you know, that's already like an interesting twist on ownership that was already different than what we were talking about before because of this infinite reproducibility and, and the, the cheapness of storage. And that then is a kind of a, now we can see that as sort of a middle point between street, like in musical terms to the streaming era. And I remember having conversations even in the 90s about how significant ownership was as a way of constituting the self by like you build up the self partly by the things that you own and decide to keep. And it's a it's a really powerful way and also a completely, you know, novel one. You know, 100 years before that, nobody had recordings at all. They were playing music. They they could look back and go, wow, these kids today, they just collect pieces of vinyl that they buy. Like back in my day, we used to just play. Everybody oh, got a fiddle. No, even, even back then, they collected songbooks. Yeah, they did. No, there's always, there's that balance is always going on. Just as today, there are zones in the culture that are incredibly creative, many of which you and I can't perceive or don't see because we're in our own little world. So the balance is always there, but there is also these significant kinds of shifts. And I think that the ownership of cultural objects, um, and this doesn't mean like whether or not you buy the file that you download or steal it, it doesn't, that's sort of already not quite ownership in the same way because it's sort of infinite. But when there's kind of that sense of limitation, it's part of the way you organize your sense of subjectivity. And so it's you know very interesting to like give away collections and things like that. But like your hard disk crashes, you're like, oh yeah, bummer. Like if it's all if it's just a bunch of, of stuff of it's like backed up on the cloud anyway. Or, oh yeah, somewhere it uh, somewhere I don't know that it does. So yeah, I think that the ownership, the the idea of stakes, I guess, and mm -hmm. and the gatekeeper thing is really interesting. You know, I can see both sides. You know, I I, I I'm enough mm -hmm. anti-authoritarian. I'm enough of a I'm sensitive enough to you know, race and gender critiques to recognize how those hierarchies were also very restrictive in certain ways. And, you know, and so there's real problems with it. But I, I think it's also pretty clear that what followed it was not, uh, you know, exactly the most um, nurturing for uh, humans, the human soul. Uh, and that I can't deny in my experience, however privileged and specific it was, the role that gatekeepers played in initiating me into zones of, you know, magic and, and wonder that really, you know, changed me fundamentally and made me, it makes me still kind of even attached to some of that material, maybe even in a slightly unhealthy way, but, you know, definitely a lot of the music and ideas and cultural artifacts that I got turned on to in my teens and early twenties are still really significant for me, even if they're not really where I live anymore. Uh, and I think it's partly because I, I, I was shaped by the whole context, not just the material itself. And that's the problem with uh, abundant content is the context is just the same <laughs> all the time. It's always the same context. I'm right. on a screen accessing something or an algorithm is, is even suggesting something to me. And that thing may be awesome. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it's different when you're young and you have those youthful energies or whatever. But I remember here, here's some I want to get into two two differences. One is a little subtler and one I think is very distinct. 
uh, I taught a course in like, uh, you know, cultural criticism, a writing course in around 2012 to undergraduates. And I was like, I know what I'm going to do for our first assignment. Too super easy. I'm going to give them a bunch of, of, of examples of great one paragraph record reviews, like the kind that Robert Criscow wrote or lots of, you know, spin, whatever. It's a whole style, the, the short, punchy rock review. I wrote the, the original hot take. Yeah, I wrote yeah. hundreds of these things. And they're fun because you're like, you're obsessed. It's, it's ridiculous to try to use words to talk about music. It's so absurd that you have to make up for it in like these interesting ways and you refer to other things, whatever. It's just like, a, I love it. It's a fun genre. So I'm like, great, we'll do that. And so we, we read a bunch of them and then like, da, da, da. And then I was like, okay, so I want you to pick something that you're like super passionate about. Like the thing you think people are idiots if they don't like. And like fucking over half the class were like, I don't, I don't know. And they didn't have it. And they ended up writing about pop music mostly, which was okay. You know, they, they wrote some of the things were really good. But uh, that was like shocking to me because that was my, you know, my experience of my generation. Everybody, everybody constituted themselves partly through their taste in music. Everybody. If it was pop, if it was whatever, everybody had their thing. And it was very subcultural you know you were you listen to metal you knew the metal heads you might not have been a metal head exactly but you knew though those were the guys you saw at the parties you know you didn't see the other people who were listening to new wave because that was kind of a different thing or whatever but then you know you, you could move between but it was all it wasn't just the music it was these kind of subcultural identities um and then you know you would sort of like by arguing with people or or, or you know proclaiming the brilliance of x over why you shaped who you were. Mm -hmm. And it was just fundamental to subject constitute how you built yourself, how you, how you not even built, just extended and clarified and expressed, signaled. Consolidated yourself. Yeah. And so that's not there. And I was like, oh yeah. wow, that's really different. And then I'm, you know, and I meet, you know, I've met younger people who are super passionate about certain things. And obviously that is partly what I'm talking about. But how they get there is so different that I just can't relate with it. And maybe it's just as interesting and magical and, mis and mysterious in certain ways. But uh, for me, that was a real distinction was like how you had stakes in the position that you had uh, and everybody did. And that was kind of a way that like relationships were, were constituted. Certainly a lot of the relationships I had. I mean, this is more of a nerdy guy thing. So uh, you know, again, I'm just only speaking from my perspective, but definitely I, I would make friend, you know, make friend, build friendships based on close affinity, but not identity. If it was, if it was identity, it's not that interesting. You want people who are like slightly different and they can turn you on to stuff or challenge some of your presuppositions. Like, no, I don't like the, the first Peter Gabriel record or whatever, you know, you're like, what do you mean? that's awesome. You know, that anyway. Uh, so that's, that's a, I think an interesting one, but the more significant one, I think, and I'm, I'm going to hold this one to being really distinct and very generational is that if you grew up with this living surround of subculture, we're like subcultures and subcultures have within them 
they all have a kind of dynamic of authenticity. You know, like who's a poser, who's a newbie, who's deep, whatever. And part of that initiatory process, part of the gatekeeping was getting into deeper and deeper zones of kind of authenticity. And some people were pretentious about it. Some people didn't care about it, but it was, it was, it's part of the dynamic. And what this then produced, and, you know, I also came of age in the time when authenticity was sort of criticized as like a rock writer. I could never write, oh, this band is an authentic metal band. You know, they really have that quality of authenticity. Like nobody would accept that because we were also aware of the code of authenticity as well as kind of how it worked in different worlds. So it was kind of a two-sided thing, at least from my, my perspective. Nonetheless, what that did produce, that is the dis distinction I want to talk about, is the idea and the fear around selling out. Yeah, so, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk with you about this one. Yeah, it's a big this, one. This is a big one. Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting about the idea and the fear and the resistance to selling out that you have some develop, you've developed something, you, you have a taste, you have an enthusiasm, you have a practice, you have an art, a point of view, and there's a world out there that wants to absorb it, uh, brand it, corporatize it, and that to do that, you risk selling out. And that's something that other people perceive, people you might respect, but also, really importantly, you yourself would perceive. So again, part of the way that the self in the in Gen X keeps itself it's like a moral value really is to not sell out. Or if you do sell out, you're kind of sheepish about it. Like I knew people who started in technology and they were doing really interesting creative things and then at some point they just do pure marketing and they're not even trying to be edgy. They're just like in the heart of it and they're just like yeah, you know, it was time to do that. I needed to make the money. I was enough of the creative VR silliness. I'm going to like, whatever, you know. And so well, there was some of, some of that came along with them having kids. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, like, I, look, I, I got to pay rent. I live yeah. in San Francisco. I can't live in the loft with five other guys anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole economic story that we could also talk about that sees Gen X's experience as the last space where there was enough kind of easy living that you could afford to kind of be authentic for a while you know and that it's just it's in, you have like how we're living in a major city now it's absurd it's like you can't even compare it to our experience let alone what the hippies got to do when they were living in hate for like 50 bucks a month and they worked once or one one or two days a month and that was enough to take care of them and everything was free because everyone yeah. was like living well, in a free culture. New York and LA were the same too, yeah. right? And, yeah. and that, I think that helped to uh, create a, a kind of soil for the subculture. Yeah. If, if you didn't have to take a Mick job and do the conformist thing, then uh, you were able to, you know, make your zines and uh, your noise music on cassette tape or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to circle back to something. I want to come back to authenticity because that that is a big marker of the generation, like in terms of values. Uh, but another value, um, what you're talking about earlier in terms of limitation, I think that's really important in that limitations define us in so many ways, and they define the the Gen X culture and alternative culture. Um, 
like just limitation of a photocopier or a screen printer, um, limitation by technology. Um, but it's like the limitation is what creates the sacred in a way. Like if everything is available all the time, then nothing is really special. And not even, not only special, but not sacred, mm -hmm. um, not to be revered and protected in the way that we felt about our subcultural artifacts mm -hmm. and practices. And so there is a whole thing that I think that's been lost, uh, you know, demonized as gatekeeping, but used to be called initiation yeah. and used to have to put in some effort and uh, just had to persevere in order to be allowed into this sacred realm. And I think the loss of that is uh, done a lot of damage to the soul of people who didn't have to go through that. And, and it is that kind of two-sided thing. I remember having a, yeah, also riffing on what you're talking about in terms of like what define, how we defined ourselves through argumentation. Um, I mean, the coffee house was the place where that happened. I remember sitting around drinking copious amounts of coffee and smoking clove cigarettes and arguing about music and art and, and even ownership and things like that when the internet was starting to really take off. Like I had a conversation with a friend who was a philosophy major and uh, kind of an anarchist. And he was talking about how this is a good thing that uh, freedom uh, of information is like the best thing to ever happen. So scan all the books, put them online for free, get all the music on there. And, you know, as someone who is a, a creator, uh, I, I really had a problem with that. You know, I saw that, you know, uh, that devalued the art that I was making and uh, struggling to make a living by. Um, but uh, so now it's all kind of wide open. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about this relationship between um, valuing of limitations and, versus um, valuing of complete openness and freedom? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a key a key distinction. And I would say that our generation negotiated or was forced to negotiate that both sides of that in a way because you know we if you were in, if you were online enthusiastically in the 90s this was inevitably becomes up this question how are we going to treat these digital artifacts and so for me even though i was a creator i was also uh open to the arguments and the the vision of this kind of immense library in the sky and partly because i was also used to getting i would get media for free it, because I was a writer, so and a reviewer, so I was sort of used to getting media for free. So I was like, yeah, yeah, media, free media, free media. I love but, it. But also, like your medium is uh, words and ideas, which is a little different from yeah. art, like tangible yeah. material art making, right? It's true. Although at the same time, you know what I did most in the '90s as a writer was eaten by the internet. You know, like yeah. more than anything else, writing about pop music are you kidding like getting how many, paid by the word how many people today write about pop music and get paid for it not a lot a lot less than did in 1995 when i when i was you know i could do i did all sorts of fun stuff so it's like i've definitely had the experience of what i do be kind of destroyed by or you know radically transformed mm -hmm. uh by the by the new situation but i want to go back to something you said um, and I still feel like there's more to say about the selling out thing, which maybe relates to mm, this, but, yeah. but 
more specifically, the relationship between limitation and the sacred. I think this is something really worth. I think there's a relationship between absolute abundance and the sacred as well. It has a different quality. I think it's worth thinking about. But let's stay with the limitation, which I think is much more visible and obvious and um, demonstrable. And what it made me think of, it just popped in my head, was being on the island of Malta. And there are these Neolithic structures the remains of neolithic structures on the you know stonehenge era uh uh on the island and there were a number of them that had a certain floor plan that i found really profound because in the floor plan you could tell that you walked into one room and then there was another space smaller that you could go into to get into the middle of the building and nobody knows exactly what they did it for it's the neolithic that didn't write more add anything down but there's widespread or you know significant and i think justifiable postulation that this is like the structure of a sanctum sanctorum there's a temple you go in the outside of the temple no big deal but there's an inner thing and you can only only some people get to go inside there and that's a very, very deep architecture, not just literally in terms of buildings, but in the mind, in social relations, in social hierarchies, where there's an inside that's magical. And in fact, the magic is partly, even predominantly, in the process of recognizing the door and getting into the door. Once you're inside, you know, it's like, it's always like a joke with like a secret society, like from the outside, you're like, oh, my God, they have these mystical uh, Freemasonic rituals with robes and they're revealing secrets of the universe. And so you climb up the ladder and you get the initiation and you're you're a neophyte and then you move up the ladder and more and more magic. And finally, finally, you get in the final door, the final level. You're up there. You're with all of the leaders of the cult and they go and they're like. All right. Um, yeah, we got a fundraiser coming up. Somebody needs to make the cookies. Uh, they're, they're hassling us about the rent and the lights are broken. Uh, you know, where it's like, huh, what? This is it. So th that's, I think, part of the experience of a lot of subcultures. Subculture, even if the core of it is actually just whatever, it's just like having fun or dancing or super certain kind of vibe or certain kind of dress. Maybe it's like a sexual practice or some kind of drug or, you know, whatever. It's cool. But it's the way that it sets up this space of limitation, of difficulty of access, of risk, of, you know, you have to kind of go back in time. You got to like sacrifice that. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. that becomes like a real sort of version of an initiation or something like that that produces a quality of the sacred, even if it's just like like rockabilly night or whatever, but there's something about having to go through that process. And I, I have no doubt that there are versions of that today, but the, it's just so easy to see the way that the analog regime kind of supported that and the subcultural regime supported that. And we just don't have those in the same way anymore. And here's another example, uh, like uh, fan culture. So 
being like a fan of Star Trek in the 60s and 70s, going to Star Trek cons and like building an alternative world with its own weird fake folk logic with filk songs because they weren't folk songs and humor and lovemaking and arguments and whatever, all in the shadow of this weird media product that the studio didn't have any idea about. They didn't control this. They didn't have anything to do with it at all. Uh, or the Grateful Dead, you know, where the dead knew that they were, they'd actually feed it. They'd say, sure, go ahead, go ahead and tape stuff. We don't care. You know, basically there's a little bit, but you know, don't, don't sell the recordings, but like, go ahead and bring your technology and record everything and, and, and train, you know, so you're allowed to develop your deadhead world, but most of the deadhead thing emerged organically over time with the fact that nobody else was really paying attention, right? Nobody's really, yeah. unless you go to the to Star Trek con, nobody, who cares about these people? They're just nerds. Nobody cares. But then at a certain point, the culture industry, and this has, has everything to do with the rise of nerd culture, which is something that also happens between the 90s and the 2000s, really significant part of the story, mm-hmm. is that with the rise of nerd culture, and once nerd culture, is, it gets established, then all those mechanisms of being a fan that were previously pretty organic they required you to be like invested in some nerdy way and some cultural item whatever now the producers and the studios are and the record labels everybody is completely aware of how all those logics work and they actively promote it they use their money that becomes part of marketing part of marketing it's like i remember reading about um or douglas rushkoff who's super good on all the stuff we're talking about he's like you know delicious uh talks he had, he had an expose i think it was in one of his great documentaries merchants of cool or one of, he did a couple um where basically it was it was it for the hunger games i can't remember so it was some like young adult film and it was this, this description of this poor kid who gets like tapped by the studio to be an influencer effectively although i don't know if we were using that language quite at that point and she just this worked her to the bone to get like some little nibble of being inside of this magical thing. And you're like, Oh man. Yeah. So that's another kind of shift. It's like, it's like culture figured out how to simulate these processes of initiation and passion that for us were organic, you know, to use a somewhat problematic organic simulacral distinction, but I think it's fair. And that's another kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, rupture point and but it also has to do with the i think to to finish up on an idea that we were talking about earlier about selling out is for me the the resistance or the knowledge of selling out what what like where i have to acknowledge to myself when i am selling out and also trying to live a life that i don't sell out which i've been able partly through for you know fortunate circumstances to be able to do um but I'm very aware of it as like a fundamental value that will never, ever, ever leave me. It is stitched into my soul. It is, it, I bring it into spirituality. I bring it into uh, rom- romance. I bring it into friendship, uh, whatever. It's just, there's no, you're not budging that guy. And then you just shifted just even slightly younger people, you know, m- certainly millennials and certainly what comes after that. It's not like they're not aware of what these processes might be, but it's just not a value. It's just not a value. There's no, what are you talking about? 
what are you selling out, huh? And then especially when you get to the zone, to the era where we're, we're all personalities and we're all marketing our personalities and the things we're doing on Instagram are kind of us and kind of not us. And we're aware of the logic of the market and the logic of, of self-promotion and how if you like take a extreme stance, then you get more feedback. And if the whole thing is about attention, then you kind of create a simulacrum of your identity and you kind of fuck with it and you're sort of alienated from it. But it's also you know, all that kind of stuff within that whole logic, like selling. What is what are you selling? What? It just doesn't even register. And that difference, like if you, if I'm talking to a younger person and I, and I go selling out and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that is like a real difference. I'm not going to try to convince you and you can't convince me, but the distinction is the marker of something that really changes in society and in psychology. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness thanks